Oh my, it is a pure joy uh, to be here with you. Uh, Aaron uh, introduced my wife, Jane, which I'm so glad he did. He forgot to introduce my dog, Finn. So at our age, we just kind of take him everywhere we go. And uh, it's just part of the privilege of, of getting old that you get to do kind of erratic things. And instead of being weird, it's kind of charming. <laughs> at least that's my theory. Um, welcome to the Mid-South region, churches in West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and now very happily in Florida. When uh, we found out that Grace Covenant Church and Aaron were going to be a part, we felt like we got the first draft pick uh, in the draft. It, it is just uh, such a joy uh, to have him and all of his gifts and graces in the Mid-South region. Just uh, less than two weeks ago, we had our Regional Assembly of Elders, which is kind of our yearly big business meeting and teaching meeting and time to get together. And it was the first time that Aaron has been with us, but it felt like he's been with us forever. He just fit in so well, and um, it, it was so easy to welcome him. But we're very excited about Aaron, but... Uh, I'm just as, if not more, excited about Grace Covenant Church. Uh, I've, I've said many times, and, and rightfully, um, regional leaders and national leaders and pastors, uh, it, is, it is right to honor and appreciate them. But the most important thing about Sovereign Grace is y'all. Uh, Sovereign Grace isn't the leadership team or regional leaders or the leaders uh, it's not about regional assemblies primarily, although those things are important. Sovereign grace is just about people like you who love Jesus, who love the gospel, who love the local church, uh, who love one another, love God's word. There would be no sovereign grace without folks like you. And it is uh, without overusing the word at all, meaning it as sincerely as I can. What a privilege to just ever be in a Sovereign Grace Church and to be with Sovereign Grace people like you all. So thank you, and I hope over the years that uh, uh, the Mid-South region and our relationship with you all uh, will just simply grow and become more meaningful and, and happy over the years. And uh, I hope I'll be visiting you a lot over the, the next few years. That would be a joy to me. Well, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, as you can see, the title of our message is Why Gospel-Centered? Why Gospel-Centered? Now, uh, Sovereign Grace, our denomination, has what we call our seven shared values. They're kind of the core values that we have built upon over the years, and one of those, in fact, I think the first uh, of our shared accord values is gospel-centeredness. But I think it can be easy to or, or be important to ask, you know, is that just a, a catchy little phrase that you use to kind of identify yourself? Uh, kind of like an advertising slogan, uh, every kiss begins with K, a breakfast of champions, uh, just do it, uh, where doers get more done, or 
for a certain demographic, tastes great, less filling. We never want gospel-centeredness to just become the background buzz of Sovereign Grace churches. We never want it to be the elevator music of Sovereign Grace churches. And if you're new here, you might be thinking, you know, what is this talk about gospel-centeredness all the time? And to do that, before we move to the scripture, and rest assured, we will move to the scripture, uh, I want to start with John Newton. Uh, most people know John Newton as the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, but John Newton was a longtime wonderful uh, pastor uh, in England, and uh, John Newton was raised by a Christian mom who unfortunately died when he was eight years old, and his father was a ship captain. And because his mom died, uh, the ship captain eventually uh, took John aboard the ship and, and raised him on the ship. And eventually he became the, a captain of a slave ship where he would go to Africa and get slaves and take them to the Americas. And uh, he also became a real blasphemer and a mocker of Jesus and those on his ship who would profess to uh, believe in Jesus and trying to discourage them from believing in him. And then on March the 10th, 1748, when he was 22 years old, during a horrible storm in the Atlantic, that everyone thought our ship is going to sink and uh, we're, we're all going to be dead. He, he cried out to God for mercy and mercifully he was saved. And he actually continued as a slaver for a while, but he eventually became a pastor and a songwriter and worked with uh, William Wilberforce to be a key man in actually ending the slave trade in Great Britain and the colonies. And at the end of his life, he, he suffered from some type of dementia. And some of his last words to a friend were this, my mind is almost gone, but I can remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And with that, Newton inadvertently gave us the essence of what it means to be gospel-centered. To be gospel-centered is to always remember. To be gospel-centered is to always remember. Never take it for granted. Never assume, okay, I got that. It is to always remember and apply the truths that I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. Uh, captured, I think, in just the one verse that we're going to look at today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. God's very words to us. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Father, I, I pray that you would, you would help this precious church today, your, your precious and beloved people. Uh, whether they've been a Christian for a long time, uh, understand the gospel and the theology of it thoroughly, or maybe a short time or this is kind of new to them, 
um, that today, as if we were hearing this for the first time, uh, these, these truths would, would impact us in, in, in a way. If there is any just kind of taking for granted and yeah, yeah, if it has become the elevator music of our lives, uh, I pray that you would just use today to uh, change that in our lives and it would become to us once again, as Aaron said earlier, the most precious truth ever to be imagined. And Holy Spirit, to that end, uh, your people need you, and I certainly need you. So grant me grace today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, message has three points. First, great sinners. Secondly, great Savior. And then last, great remembering. Great sinner, great Savior, great remembering. First of all, great sinners. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul says, and I could say with him, am the foremost. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's important to remember who we were. The Bible could not paint a more unflattering uh, picture of men and women before they were saved, of what we needed to be saved from. Uh, The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were actually hostile and opposed to God, not merely neutral towards him, uh, that we were rebellious, uh, that we were enslaved, that, that our sin itself had, had captured and enslaved us, and that because of all of these things, we were corrupted to our very core, uh, corrupted to the very heart of who we were with this, this terrible and yet self-generated incapacity to do anything about it. And not only that, but a holy, just, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator, judge of the universe is angry, righteously angry because of our sin and rebellion and and hostility to him. Uh, Ephesians chapter two tells us that we were by nature, in other words, who, who we are in our very core, we were by nature objects of God's fierce and justified wrath. And just on the face of it, This was an absolutely hopeless uh, situation. I couldn't change. You couldn't change. And actually, we didn't want to. And we couldn't just hope that God would say, oh, well, um, and and keep his integrity and and his holiness. In other words, each and every one of us, as as from from the moment of our birth, we were born into this deadly peril, being the objects of God's wrath because of our sin. Uh, maybe the most famous and well-known sermon ever preached in America was preached by Jonathan Edwards. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, in this sermon, he, he, he had several images that as I've read the sermon over the years, it's really stuck with me. One of the things he said is, there is nothing between you and hell but air. 
there's, there's nothing that's keeping you out of hell this very moment but air. And then he, he used this illustration of a, a spider who was weaving his web uh, near a lit candle. And he talked about uh, it, all it would take is just a, the, the briefest touch of that candle on that web for the spider to fall into the, the fire. So we were indeed great sinners. And, and, and this should, uh, if we rightly understand it, produce gratitude in, in our hearts and produce humility in our hearts. Uh, I know a lot of people think, well, I, I don't, I don't want to think of my past. I don't want to think of these things and what I was and what I did. But, but listen, the purpose of this exercise is not to relive our guilt. The purpose of this exercise is not to go back and think, oh, I was this, I was that. But it's to revel in the gospel. We will never revel truly in the gospel. We'll never be gospel-centered. We'll, we'll never understand the full joy of, of the gospel unless we remember what we were saved from, unless we remember what great sinners we were. It's why John Newton said, I can only remember two things. He was wise that one of the two things he remembered was that he was a great sinner because only people that remember their great sinners will ever revel in the gospel. And we need to remember that we remain justified in process sinners. Uh, That we are justified, that we've been forgiven our sins, but we're still sinners. Paul talks about this battle in Galatians 5.17. And all of us can, can relate with this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things we want. In other words, we have our remaining flesh and the spirit and there's this constant headbutting of, of, of these desires, but by the grace of God, uh, we can overcome those because the spirit of God that lives in you is more powerful than your flesh. So great sinners, but a great savior. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, we need to ask two questions whenever we read that. And the first one is this, how did he do that? How exactly did Christ save these sinners who were hostile to him and the objects of God's justified wrath? How did he do that? How did he deal with sins? And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 to three, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. How did he save us from our sins? He died for our sins. Now, uh, for has a, a variety of different meanings, but in this context, it means in place of or in exchange for. That Christ died to save sinners. Christ came into the world to stand in place of sinners. Uh, Years ago, there was a a commercial for Visa uh, credit card and the tagline was, accept no substitutes. Uh, Don't get yourself a MasterCard. You know, you only want Visa, accept no substitutes. 
But one of the wonderful fundamental truths that runs through scripture from the beginning to end is this. God accepts substitutes. God accepts a substitute. In fact, the key to the gospel can be summed up in this short phrase, satisfaction through substitution. That God's righteous anger, that God's holy opposition to sin was satisfied through Jesus' substitutionary death on your behalf and my uh, behalf. That all that God held against us when Jesus died for our sins, he placed upon him, he became our substitute so that we could be forgiven of our sins. It's what one man called the amazing exchange that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing exchange. He took our sin, we got his righteousness. Um, Karl Barth is generally considered the preeminent theologians or one of the preeminent theologians of the 20th century. Now, we wouldn't agree with him on everything, but he got this right when he said, the words for us speak to a place which ought to be ours, that we ought to have taken this place, that we have been taken from it, that it was occupied by another, that this other acts in place only he can in our cause and interest. Yes, indeed, that's exactly what he did. And, and once our sins are paid for, the benefits of the righteousness of God are, are multitude. Uh, forgiveness. All of your sins in the past, in the present, but all of your sins in the future, they have already been forgiven because Jesus was your substitute on the cross. Uh, reconciliation with God. Um, our, our sins separated us from the only source of true blessing and happiness that is available to us in this world. Uh, and that is to have a relationship with God. Uh, adoption. Uh, I think adoption is one of the, probably one of the most underpreached benefits of the gospel. In uh, 1 John, uh, John tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And, and that, that phrase, what kind of love, it expresses in the original language an alien experience. That, that, that the love of God that would not only forgive sinners, but adopt them as his very own children, it's, it's, it's an experience that's alien to anything that we could compare it with in the world. In other words, if you're searching, well, the love of God for sinners that he would adopt them is like, there's there's nothing, there's nothing that that we can compare that to. 
And Paul urges, see, see what kind of love it was that God would call you his, his child. And then we receive the Holy Spirit. And when I talked about the battle of sin earlier against sin uh, that's ongoing, the reason we can overcome that is we possess the very Holy Spirit of God. God himself indwells us to empower uh, our lives, to follow him uh, in every way possible. And then uh, we receive eternal life. That uh, after this mortal life fades away or when Jesus returns, uh, eternal life. And all of these things, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, the spirit, eternal life, they can never be changed. They can never be revoked. You, you can't blow it. You can't do something that, uh, all right, well, that's it. Because it's not based on your performance. It's based on what Jesus did for you. And he never changes. And God will never revoke those promises. So that's how he did it. But I think the second question that we need to ask is, it, why? why? Why would he do that? Why, why would God the Father send his son to become sin for sinners who hated him, who were hostile to him, who rebelled against him, who actually deserved his, his rap? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus agree to, why? Well, here's the answer. It is pure, unexplained, unexplainable grace. There's, there's no other answer. Pure, unexplained, unexplainable grace and mercy. Nothing that we've done. Titus 3 says it this way. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In Ephesians chapter 2, just after Paul talks about the fact that we are sinners and by nature objects of God's wrath, he says, but God, but God. Could there, could there be two more important words? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Theologian A.A. Hodge said, since all men alike deserved only God's wrath and curse, the gift of the only begotten son to die in the stead of malefactors, sinners, is, and I love this phrase, is the most stupendous exhibition of undeserved favor and personal love that the universe has ever witnessed. Brothers and sisters, we, we get to look at we get to hear about the most stupendous exhibition of undeserved favor and personal love that the universe has and ever will see. What, what a great savior indeed Jesus is. Great sinners, great savior, but then great remembrance. The saying is trustworthy. I always chuckle a little bit, like isn't it all? But whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or something is trustworthy, he wants to call, he's calling particular attention. It's like Paul is saying, now don't miss what I'm about to say. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, ongoing acceptance, personal appropriation without any reservation. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, by the way, don't miss that, not was, the foremost. In other words, this gospel truth is not consigned to the past. Like a a memorable vacation or a wonderful meal or a great book you read or or a picture you have up uh, on the wall. And it's not consigned to your testimony about how you got saved. Uh, Many many Christians would say, well, uh, isn't the gospel only for unbelievers? Isn't the gospel just this message that you need to hear in order to get saved? You know, Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Isn't it just the gate that we enter through, uh, but then we move on down the road? Does it have anything to do uh, with anything? other than our initial experience of salvation. Well, it has everything to do with it. Uh, Our initial salvation isn't the end of the story because after that, we're we're called on to battle sin, enter this process of sanctification and growing in character. And we're called on to serve the Lord and Uh, there are times when we're going to struggle and and we're going to suffer. So why remember? Why gospel-centered? I'll repeat this because this is the heart of what I want to say to you. The gospel is central because we only and always relate to and receive from God on the basis of it. The gospel is central because we only and always relate to God and receive from God on the basis of it. It's central because that's the only way. There are, there are no many paths to relate to and receive from God. There's only one way. The gospel is the only way that we are able to relate to and receive from God. It is only and it is always the way. In other words, the gospel isn't a, uh, we're going to do the gospel for a couple thousand years and then we're going to change and try something else. No, it is only, but it is always. God will, God will never change the way that we both relate to him. Um, one, one way to explain the Christian life that is perfectly biblical is a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus. How is it that sinners are able to personally relate with a holy God, it is because of the gospel. Why is it that every day, every moment of your life, you can come to him, you can approach him, you can call him your father, you can say you're his child, that, that um, you, you can, uh, you can um, in, enjoy that. Rela- Why is that? It's because of the gospel, only and always. And how is it that you receive anything from him? Not just the initial gifts, but the ongoing uh, gifts of God, the blessings uh, of God, uh, both temporal and material and spiritual. Every blessing that you have received from God, it's because of Jesus. 
It's because of, of the gospel. And so the gospel is central because it's not just a gate through which you enter. It is the entire path of your journey from beginning to end through which you're able to relate to and receive from God. Sinclair Ferguson um, summed this up really well in a short little passage. He said, in relation both to sin and to God, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past, it's Christ's past. But I, I want to finish this talking about four great temptations. Four great temptations that kind of are largely unspoken in our battle against sin, in our commitment to serve, in the midst of struggling and suffering, which, if we aren't aware of and if we don't resist, will we'll sour our efforts to relate to and receive from God and surely cause us to go astray. Uh, they, they are temptations that if we give into, will cut us off from the very grace that we need to live the, uh, the Christian life. And against these four temptations, the gospel is the only remedy. Uh, the first temptation is license. License. Uh, the gospel is not a license to sin. The gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yes, all your sins, past, present, and future, uh, have been forgiven, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that we are free to sin. Uh, the question of being saved and going on sinning and living a selfish, self-centered life is actually addressed in the New Testament. Paul addresses it in the book of Romans. And, and by the way, if you haven't at least thought that, you don't really understand how good justification is, how good the forgiveness of God is. Well, if all my sins pass for this, you know, can I have my cake and eat it too? But, but Paul's answer to that question, well, can I just go on sinning? By no means. By no means. The gospel doesn't give us a license uh, to sin. We, we, we're not saved by our holiness, but we are saved to holiness and, and good works. Obedience is not a condition for being saved, but it is a characteristic of those who are genuinely saved. So we must resist this temptation to license, to feel like it doesn't matter what I do. Because what will happen is this, you'll cut yourself off from grace because of a sense of its unimportance. The, the grace to live a holy life isn't important because I'm forgiven, what does it matter? Uh, the second great temptation is legalism. I define legalism as living as if, and those are the important two words, living as if relating to God is on the basis of my performance rather than by faith in the performance of Christ. Uh, and I say living as if because I don't, I don't think anybody intentionally gets up in the morning and decides to be legalistic. It, it's not a conscious choice. We, we fall into it easily. That's why it's so dangerous. Uh, that's why I say living as if it were the case. All of us know at some level, because of the gospel, we don't need to earn things from God, but 
we live like it. You know, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions betray me because that's what comes most naturally to us. Every other religion in the world besides Christianity is based on what you do or don't do to be in a right relationship and to receive from uh, God. And so what I'm currently thinking is divorced from what I know to be true. If I perform poorly, I feel like I'm cut off. And if I perform well, I feel like I'm in good standing. So let me just, let me just ask a question. How are you affected when you, you had your devotions in the morning? You read your Bible and prayed or, or helped a little old lady across the street or you cooked your husband his favorite meal even though he was mean to you. Do you feel like, man, God must really be happy with me today and I deserve extra credit? Or what about you missed your devotions? Or you yelled at your kids again? Or you looked at inappropriate material on the TV or, or, or the internet? So many Christians live their lives with low-grade condemnation just constantly, I need to earn my way back into God's good graces. I need to earn my way back into God's good graces. Uh, I need to earn my way. But by the way, it's very different from repentance. We don't earn anything by our repentance, but we, but we need to repent. That's why Job, um, Paul could say in Romans 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no actual condemnation, but there should be no imagined condemnation either. The reality should, should guard our souls. But this is what legalism does. It cuts us off from grace because of a sense of undeserving. I don't deserve the grace of God. And, and so we cut ourselves off by falling into the temptation to uh, legalism. The third great temptation, licensed legalism, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is forgetting that all we have or will ever have received comes because of the gospel. And all we deserved was hell. So we can so easily think, uh, you know, I have done, I have earned. Why, why doesn't God do such and such for me? It's, it's actually another form of legalism Instead of thinking I've performed badly and I'm cut off, we think I've performed well and I deserve these things from, from God. And sadly, often it, it leads to complaining against God and charging God. Why didn't, you know, after all I've done for you, why didn't you? Um, so self-righteousness is just what it says. My standing with God, my righteousness, my relating is rooted in myself and what I have done and, and, and my works. Um, but 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that you haven't received? Galatians 6, 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We only can boast in the cross because it's because of the cross, it's because of the gospel that we have everything we've received from God. So in, in self-righteousness, we're, we're cut off from grace by a sense of deserving. Grace isn't necessary. Unmerited favor isn't necessary. I have merited the favor of, uh, of God. And so uh, license, cut off by a, uh, a sense that it doesn't matter. Uh, legalism, set off, uh, cut off by a sense of undeserving. 
self-righteousness, a sense of deserving, and then self-sufficiency, looking to find strength in ourselves that can only be found in the cross. I can do, but God doesn't need to do for me. Now, I don't want to offend anybody with this next illustration, Uh, so please don't be offended. Uh, there, there is what I like to call Cracker Barrel theology. Uh, have you ever been to a Cracker Barrel and seen plaques? And There's a certain theology that Cracker Barrel promotes. And one uh, of the things that's been very popular over the years is, and you might be familiar with this, it's a poem called Footprints. Is anybody familiar with the Footprints? Okay, some of you are. And it's, it's this story about... Uh, Jesus and I were walking down the beach together and I saw two sets of footprints going along. Uh, and, and, but then when the journey of my life got difficult, I only saw one set of footprints. And, and I asked Jesus, uh, Jesus, why is it that you abandoned me during those times? And Jesus said, I didn't abandon you, I carried you. That's why it was only one set of footprints. I think the real, I think I would change the poem to call it face prints because I think the reality is any time that Jesus isn't carrying us, any time we're not reserving grace, what we would see in the, in, in the beach is just ourselves constantly falling down and face planting for need of God's grace. Um, you know, I've heard so many people say, well, I was just trying to do it on my own strength. And that, that sounds so innocent uh, foolish but innocent, but it's just arrogant. You know, we don't have the strength. That, that's why Jesus said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do the easy things. You know, you, no, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jerry Bridges said in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, Just as we by faith look to Christ for our righteous standing before God, so by faith we are to look to him for the enabling power to live the Christian life. And so self-sufficiency cuts us off from grace by a sense of adequacy. I don't, don't, God's grace is unnecessary for me because I am sufficient on my own. Bridges went on to say in the discipline of grace, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet, we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experience the joy of living in it. Oh, Grace Covenant Church, may it never be said of a single individual in this church that has ever been here or ever will be here. May it never be said of you that you lived your entire lives without clearly understanding and experiencing the joy of living in it. And and I know by having a pastor like Aaron who who loves this, uh, you won't be. He he will keep you gospel-centered. Aaron, thank you for being a good pastor to these these folks. May may we never, may may we not be Uh, among the thousands who live their entire lives without understanding the gospel and what it means to be gospel-centered and to live in the joy of it. So, brothers and sisters, let us remember. In fact, let us be great 
rememberers. Let us be great rememberers when we go about battling sin. Let us be great rememberers when we seek to serve the Lord. Let us be great rememberers in those times of struggle and suffering that come to every Christian. In fact, let us be great rememberers when things are going really well, when things are going great. Let's let the gospel be central to everything we think and everything that we uh, do. Let's remember it in our reading. Let's remember it as we hear preaching and sing on Sundays. Let's remember it in our meditating and in our memorizing. Oh, it, it will keep us humble. It will keep us dependent. It will keep us grateful. It will keep us dutiful. It will keep us God-glorifying. Uh, the band can come on up. David Pryor said in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, we never, therefore, move on from the cross of Christ only into a more profound understanding of the cross. Father, I pray for this precious church and these precious people. May they never move on from the cross of Christ, but only into a more profound understanding of not only what happened there, but why and every implication for our lives. Please guard them against license and legalism and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Please help them to be those, those blessed people who every day live with an understanding of and a joy in the gospel. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.